Hi, and welcome back to Contourcast. I'm Cat Boyd, and I'm joined with my co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? How's it going? Yeah, sorry for the delay in getting our pod out. We've both been um, kind of hectic, mostly. Um, well, David's been living the high life up at the SNP conference, which you'll give a little report back from. Mm-hmm. Um, David sent me a very beautiful thing on Twitter yesterday, which has really brought me a lot of joy, which was the latest um, Extinction Rebellion hilarity that's, yeah. that's come out. It was a video of some Extinction Rebellion activists doing some street theatre. They yeah. were arresting a broccoli. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, uh, and and people were commenting that this is what happens when you allow, um, you know, people who are members of like university drama clubs and stuff in into social movements is that they start ostentatiously arresting various root vegetables <laughs> uh, in the middle of your your demonstrations. And it's really so. So on the last pod, I think it, yeah, it was the last one. I defended the Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, my, I suppose I just want to be a bit contrarian about it because everyone seems to be giving them a kicking, and mm-hmm. um, in some cases quite literally yeah. giving them a kicking. But that that video has really quite, uh, it's horrifying to watch. So it's a group of about ten people. Mm-hmm. There's a guy who's got like his hair in bunches and he's wearing dungarees as well, and mm-hmm. he just he looks like a kids' TV presenter that's gone really wrong. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's got that sort of feel about it. And they're screaming at a broccoli, like, you're under arrest, you're under arrest. I mean, I wish I was making this up, but I'm, I'm not. Yeah, it, it's what happens when, you got to remember by this point, you know, a lot of these people have gathered in central London again and again. And they're probably starting to lose touch with reality up to a certain yeah. point. Reminds me a bit of um, the uh, the Hetherington uh, university occupation. Which... Oh yeah, so maybe not all of our listeners will be aware of no, the Hetherington because that'll be like occupation. ten years ago or something. Now yeah. that I started, so not yeah. quite. But so this was an occupation at Glasgow University of the old Hetherington building, which was no longer in use at the time. Yeah. Over cuts fees. on campus. Yeah. Yeah. It was the height of the student movement. Yeah. 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 And before I slag it off, I should say it is, as far as I know, the UK's longest running and, mo- and one of its most successful uh, university occupations. However, over the some six months that it lasted, uh, it became increasingly bizarre uh, because you can't coop up a bunch of you know upper middle class kids in a disused bar for six months without things going a wee bit, you know, (laughs) (laughs) arresting a a root vegetable. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I remember when that was happening because I wasn't a student anymore because I'm sort of, I'm a little bit older than you, like not massively. I was quite an old student as well. uh, So, but like a lot of the people who were involved in that were actually at university, but I was working, I was working for the job centre at the time and I was really involved in the union and doing loads of union activity which feels a lot more like the kind of it it feels like the hard edge of class politics (laughs) at times do you know what I mean though it is Mm. and we were on strike and there was like big industrial disputes at that point and I knew the Hetherington was happening and was we were really supportive of that in my union branch Mm. Um, and then I remember asking someone to take me along to the Hetherington occupation and um, we went along and it was quite nice inside. It was like all very cordial. Um, but it very quickly descended into the 
crazy chats about the left and I don't know, well things like... that, things that are supposed familiar to people by now you know like the the cult of wokeness and stuff like that I have to say it was the first time I'd come across that stuff and it was a culture shock for me in in, in two ways the first was I didn't understand at first that a, a generation of people who were they were probably mostly sort of just about three years younger than me yeah. most of these people right but they were sufficiently younger that they had basically learned their entire worldview online. And of course, the major cultural exporter online is the United States. So I, I it was a total culture shock when I first came across that. But also what I didn't understand is the members of that university occupation were privately educated at elite schools. Is that true? I, well, the ones who were like the hardcore. Right, and I thought I didn't understand that at the time. There, was lot, there were some cool people around. There were, that. there were, there were, there were plenty, right? But uh, the other thing that I found sociologically interesting was the the core of that occupation were English students. But that's not a surprise. That's because they were directly affected by the yeah the fees yeah. issue. Um. So yeah, it was it, it contained some of those elements. But as I understand it, as it went on, even those elements who are sort of you know influenced by that kind of politics were deposed by increasingly fanatical people i remember the last days of the heatherington occupation before the police eviction and there being a big debate about buying a pig (laughs) or chickens even after that i understand that eventually some odd types turned up in the occupation and were worshipping crystals (laughs) <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they were trying to defeat the university management with some sort of, you know, magic or, or something. Crystals. Like. I remember that me and a couple of friends recently were going to start a, a zine mm. called Coven Wheel, mm. <laughs> which was going to be all like how to hex your boss <laughs> <laughs> and making effigies of politicians yeah. and burning them and doing some voodoo. Yeah. Um, so. But I think that's actually, there is like a witches against Trump thing. Oh, God, I know there is. <laughs> There'll be an everything against Trump. But from... I would what... say that Coven Wheel was imagined when I was still smoking weed. Yeah. <laughs> Caveat. The tagline and they're was... they're straight edge, but that was definitely a low point. <laughs> I, uh, I remember the, the tagline was all of us witches. All of us witches, yeah. yeah which uh, is, uh, it's a reference to Rosemary's all... Baby. Oh, right. And all of us first. Because oh, right. there's a bit in Rosemary's Baby where it says all of us witches. <laughs> um, but from uh, uh, worshipping crystals and arresting cabbages to um, the the cabbaging that uh, a couple of Extinction Rebellion protesters took on top of a train. At uh, Canning Town. In Canning Town, right? Now, again, I have to supply a caveat here. It is obviously ridiculous that people and wrong that people would attack peaceful protesters doing that right obviously i feel like there's a david jameson butt coming yeah. here <laughs> the inner gammon um says that uh, <laughs> obviously as is now quite well discussed uh that was a, a completely ill thought out political action and I understand as well it wasn't sanctioned by Extinction Rebellion, but because Extinction Rebellion is non-hierarchical and decentralised and all these sorts of buzz phrases, there was nothing that they could do to stop it. And then these people claiming the mantle of Extinction Rebellion, right? And obviously it was going to go wrong because it was early in the morning, 
the tube was absolutely rammed with obviously stressed out people, right, who suddenly felt attacked by uh, these folk. Um, at the same time, the reaction was both terrifying and quite funny. There was a, a horrible scene where once they grabbed one of these guys and pulled him off the top of the train, um, and it wasn't like the, 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 the commuters, you know, you got people saying things like commuters are the seedbed of like proto-fascism and all this kind of stuff, right? First of all, the commuters instantly started arguing among themselves about what to do, right? And one woman was pulling a guy off. <laughs> Once this guy had been t torn off the top of the train, there was a guy in a hood who wheeled up behind him and like kicked him in the back of the head, right? And a woman grabbed him <laughs> and pulled him away and was like, what are you doing? And he just sort of shouted something like, you can just make it out. Something like, he was on train. <laughs> <laughs> so there was like an element of like, just, you know, sometimes like in a, in a situation like that, people collectively lose the head. Right. Yeah. That was obviously the reaction, obviously based on the fact that these people were fucking coming back from night shifts or going off to early morning shifts and were stressed out and exhausted as it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, an, an object lesson in how not to do politics. Yeah. Which is to fail to distinguish between, apart from anything else, fail to distinguish between the people who are actually destroying the planet and people who are caught up in the machine of, of modern capitalism. Actually, I think that the protesters had a banner that said something like stop business as usual so even the message mm. was like this is your fault mm. for being for being orthodox and carrying on with your life mm. and going to work and things like that yeah you're killing the planet so. but i think that this is we talked about this before it's like i think that's a symptom of the almost end of the world cult mentality of extinction rebellion as a whole because see if you are really bought into the timeline for human extinction mm. <laughs> that that group are promoting, yeah. then honestly, you don't give a shit about getting dragged off a train and battered by commuters because yeah. everything is going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is the, the other part of that protest was that um, old guy, I think he was 83, and he glued himself to the side of the train. Yeah, yeah. There was, was he on the Canning Town one as well? I think he was, but he was like... It's he glued, a similar situation. He glued his hand onto the train, and there was an interview with him about... And again, like, just made me think of this, like, end-of-the-world cult, mm -hmm. because he was he was talking about being a Christian mm -hmm. um, and about, like, how that had informed his... Destroyed God, you know, God's world and, yeah, yeah there's a lot yeah. of that stuff, yeah. So there's a lot of, like... I think there's a lot of intersections with people who are searching for meaning, mm -hmm. with, but finding it in this apocalyptic death cult. Yeah, and you 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 can see that you know whenever a tactical problem is put before the movement, there's a section of the movement that says, "Yeah, but we're all going to die." Do you know there is that thing of yeah. like we are absolutely logically and morally right in what we are doing, therefore every other consider consideration yeah. is null and void. I mean, it's a it's a reflection of the climate emergency this is an emergency we just have to do something to be seen to be doing something mm. without actually reflecting on tactics that will be successful i mean personally by the way i found that video footage of the guy being dragged off the train harrowing like, it is, i found that yeah, yeah. Like, really difficult to watch and i saw people 
like online saying oh you know these are just working class commuters just going about their business no wonder they're angry but at the same time I'm like yeah but that doesn't mean that you just get to kick someone's head in <laughs> yeah. so, I mean I understand people are really are frustrated with that um, but I also think that the, this idea of like the commuters like as a whole like fair enough they're not city workers but does that mean that like a city worker should be battered <laughs> compared to someone who's on like a zero hours contract in a like in a shit job somewhere. Is is the it, there's a slightly there's a slightly demeaning thing about working class people involved in this, which was, uh, yeah, yeah, of course they're animals. Of course, if you exactly yeah. that's what that's that's it actually that yeah. like really sums it up is like there was a sense of like well of course you know these people are going to be like battering someone and you know getting really scrappy and messy because they are angry working class people but then you have this woman that you've described who's like what are you doing yeah half like, the people on the yeah. platform will like stop doing There's this a sort of crazy, a caricature yeah. of like working class commuters on canning township it's like yeah of course they're going to be violent and it should be said as well that i think that part of the reason that turned to violence so quickly wasn't just the in- inherent frustration of the, of the moment it is that the media and politics has demonised these people yeah, yeah. they have all, <laughs> but they've not helped themselves with this like arresting broccoli yeah, and stuff yeah, and there yeah. was the other like basically me and David's DMs to each other on Twitter are just sharing Extinction Rebellion videos and <laughs> um, there was another one it's like about two and a half minutes long and it's a guy with waist length dreadlocks and hardly any clothes on doing some interpretive dance in front of the police. Oh, and there's like, there's this, <laughs> there's this police officer who's actually putting his hand over his mouth because he's trying not to laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, I'd crack under those circumstances. Do you know though, do you know the thing about like... Where's police brutality when you need it? <laughs> do you know, I, I also though, I would say about the commuter rage, I get terrible commuter rage, right? See if I'm running late for something, everyone becomes my enemy. You know, I mean, see inside your own head, you turn into a fucking brutal person, right? It's like that. See, like an old woman gets in your way and she's walking slowly, right? Now, obviously, here's the difference. I'd never enact my violent fantasies <laughs> of commuting, right? <laughs> but in my head, you're fucking barging her out the way and fucking slapping Listen, people out the way. I, there was a period of time where I worked in an office on Rose Street in Edinburgh, mm. right? And I was, I was part-time there. And I only worked there for like six months or something, but it was during the festival. And see, like commuting from Glasgow, getting through, getting off at Waverley, and getting from Waverley Station to Rose Street, which is not a big walk. Mm. It's like about ten minutes, but during the festival, which is kind of what London is like all the time, mm. getting to the office on Rose Street, I would be, I mean, throwing. Japanese tourists out the way, right? <laughs> Old late, like just barging. Like, yeah. I'm like, how does anybody live in Edinburgh during the festival and not get this, like, yeah, oh my, like, so stressful? Yeah, I mean, I think that there should be a, a payment, an additional windfall payment to people who work in Edinburgh during the festival. They yeah. should get like some kind of bonus for having to deal with all of that disruption. Right, no, it's crazy. Um, Another instance of, um, you know, sort of ambiguous public violence was this guy at Question Time, who I want to brand Accidental Shinner. 
<laughs> accidental there a, rap. There was a breakout of accidental Bobby Sands <laughs> in question time. Yeah. Um, well, there was something I was going to say about commuters. Oh, yeah. So basically, I'm interested in how like the commuter culture intersects with climate change. Right? Mm-hmm. So I've been, this is one of my half baked theories that I sort of explore at times. Um, but if you're a commuter and you have to go through a busy city and everything is on the go then of course everything that you have to consume by the circumstances you are in has to be disposable and instant so the idea of like a takeaway coffee cup Mm. of course that is linked into commuter culture Mm -hmm. is linked into the fact that people's time is being eroded by work and the pressures of work becomes even more real if you're in a precarious job. Mm. So if you're in precarious employment, so the this new film that's come out, this Ken Loach one, um, and I was talking to a couple of people about it, and there's people who work for, um, is it Hermes? Like the parcel delivery people? Yeah. Is that what it's called? I think so. Another well-informed point on this podcast. <laughs> but anyway, people who, are, who work in the parcel delivery side, they are paid by the parcel. And not by the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to, some people will go into work two hours early to start sorting their parcels, because that means that they can finish it, you know, three o'clock to go pick up their kids. But it means they're doing like twelve hour days. And if you're working that type of shift and you're not being paid for that time, and it's only by the parcels you deliver, then everything else has to be instant and quick. So you have to have microwavable meals that come in plastic containers. You don't fucking grow your own vegetables because that's time consuming. You don't have time to have breakfast and a cup of coffee in your house before you leave. You have to grab on the go, on the go, on the go. Oh, this is and that's like that. create is so wasteful and no individual, and this is the problem with individual solutions to climate change, mm-hmm. is like no individual can stop that because that is a structural factor like that is a reflection on like our work culture, Britain's long hours, low productivity culture. No individual can stop that. But this is the sort of thing that, like, I want. I would like unions to play more of a role mm-hmm. in, like a shorter working week, for example, is beneficial to meeting climate targets. Absolutely. Can I also just mention a a, a minor cultural panic that I've noticed, which is about people, but particularly women, eating on public transport. I find this one so weird, right? Because where is this going? You, well, <laughs> you sort of, you don't, th- you don't associate sort of public morality codes, like you know, of that kind with, um, with Britain, right? But the increase in time that people are spending commuting is leading more people to eat on public transport, right? And first of all, do you remember a couple of years ago around the time of the Me Too stuff? People started to explore this phenomenon of Facebook pages that often had tens of thousands of users on them, right? Men, who would take photographs of women eating on public transport and then, you know, complain about them and shame them and talk about no, what I, they were. No, this stuff. is new to me. Really? Yeah. And, and I remember reading a long kind of article about it in The Guardian and they spoke to women who'd found out that they, they had pictures taken of them and then put on these Facebook pages. Apparently there is a specific form of misogyny where men get extremely angry about women eating in public because they, they consider it unladylike and call them pigs and all that kind oh of stuff. Oh my God, right? that's awful. I know. 
<laughs> Plumb in the depths, right? And then there was a big hoo-ha, not this week, I think, but last, where a think tank released a th- something about public obesity and specifically said one of the main things that needs to be achieved is people need to be stopped from eating on public transport. And I could not work out what... what And, of course, what, what they were saying was, well, people commute a lot now and they've gotten used to it. It's like when you always eat at the cinema. People are getting used to eating yeah. on public transport and they need to be stopped because it's making them fat. And I was just thinking, I, first of all, you don't just go on a bus and see people munching away. I don't know where this is coming no. from. But there is, as part of the the wider cultural change of the fact that people do spend, um, and it is only a stratum of the workforce, but it's a growing one, spend loads of time on fucking trains really, and I mean, planes I, and I so think on. it's probably bad for you. To yeah. to be eaten like that, like. But why uh, the why the cultural fascination with it? Yeah. Um. But anyway. Um. Yeah. So we're going to talk about accidental shinner. accidental shinner on yeah. question time. So, this is. I mean, I tend not to watch question time. No, it's truly horrific. Because it's horrific, but also, it's the same episode every single week. Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing comes to my mind every time I think about Question Time, which was an episode years ago, where um, one of the debate topics was should we rehabilitate Enoch Powell? Right, so there's, there's the classic, classic framing straight away, right? And some pointless Labour politician made a speech where he said, you know, in a in a very pompous, no, I don't think that we should. He, terrible man, he's racist and so forth, right? Massive applause, right? Then Nigel Farage says, we should rehabilitate him. He was right about absolutely everything. The exact same people, massive applause, right? And you just think, what's the fucking salvation yeah. from that? I mean, it's it's fair. I mean, the weird thing about it is that when I was on, like the thing that struck me most was the the noticeable relationships between panellists. So what I mean by that is I obviously we read a lot about like the establishment, the revolving door of the establishment, those ties between different people who on the surface may be in different parties within the establishment but ultimately represent the same class interests. So in the green room they're all so yeah, yeah, so when we walked into the green room it was me and Jonathan Shaffey, right? So he was my Let's, let's say bad carrier for fun. Yeah. But like, or emotional support trot. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we walked into the green room, there was the Labour MP, the Tory MP, John Nicholson, uh, a woman from like Money Matters. Mm. Um, and they were all, hey, how you doing? Not seeing you in ages. Hug, 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 hug. Yeah, what you been up to? How was your holiday? Pals. Mm. They were all pals because they all work within that, like that establishment Bubble, yeah. Bubble, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, whenever I've seen it since, I'm like, you might be doing, like, apart from, like, notable exceptions of, like, really principled left-wingers that have been on it, like, I know that when those cameras stop rolling, everyone's just like, oh, what would you make of that? Do you know? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it's like. Yeah. But our, our accidental <laughs> shinner this week reminds me of a certain type of person that you do actually get on. Okay. Question time, right? So will we will we listen to what he he had to say? Yeah, go for it. To say something that I never thought I'd 
leave my mouth, which is I think Boris Johnson's done a brilliant job with going over there. Everyone said, everybody said, oh, you he won't do this, you can't do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he's actually, he's proven everybody wrong. And from my perspective, it seems to me that um, no matter, you know, he's just knocking things out of the park and people just can't stand it. And that's really got... You know, people like myself, like, more interested again. Like, oh, actually, this guy wants to do it for the people, wants to do it. And he's really pushing forward. Now, another point I'm going to make is the DUP and the EU seem to be really levering the island backstop thing for the whole of Brexit. There's thousands of issues, I'm sure, to do with Brexit. But it's always to do with the Good Friday Agreement, the DUP, the Northern Ireland backstop, all this. I'm like, well, what's, why does that one issue stop and put a, a big break on the whole thing and we have to negotiate around that and um, why doesn't it you know it's going to sound crazy but ireland being referred to as ireland the island of ireland why don't we try and just get that as an island again and then we can carry on with our own thing no longer have northern ireland no longer have as part of no. yeah, just the united kingdom ireland the whole of ireland <laughs> what I love about that is when he finally gets, and by the way, I mean, he, he is an arch. See, when he says, I never thought I'd say this about Boris Johnson, you would only say that, right? Yeah. He's the archetypal kind of Tory lad, geezer kind of, do you know what I mean? Like, um, and I think he's the sort of guy that when he goes out with his pals, they're like, oh shit, Tim's talking about politics again. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, and he. he so he, he first of all he's so obviously of that tribe yeah, right yeah. Uh, and then he says and he can tell he just knows nothing about the issue and just wanders in, insane but the look at his face when he goes just have Ireland just the island of Ireland <laughs> <laughs> the, the look at his face is so sort of like wholesome like wouldn't that be great and I, I just thought the, oh, that's the only thing about it is because they're obviously you do get cranks in the mm. question time audience so remember like a couple of years ago there was that guy with a hat and a fake moustache <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> uh, the one I was thinking of is the one in Scotland the my guy no, with the, no. the orange jacket who no. was shouting you support the IRA <laughs> Imagine those two have been in the audience together. Like so Clash great. of the Titans. That's, eh? that's why I want a debate between them. Is yeah. Orange Jacket question time guy and Accidental the Shinner. whole of Ireland <laughs> question time guy. Um, no, I was thinking of the guy who was like uh, an evangelical Christian and it was up in the Highlands or something would be. And he goes, uh, we will save the union in the name of Jesus. That oh, guy. I love that guy. He's so in good. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> get, get rid of question time and just have those people. Just the, the, every episode has a nut job. Get that one. Yeah, so what you want is like, it's a, like a best of the best question Put time. Put them on the right, panel. Yeah. This, this is our pitch to the BBC. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, what you want is get all the characters from the question time audience. Yeah. And just get them. Get them on the panel and put politicians in the and, audience. In the audience. <laughs> and the politicians have to ask questions yeah. to the nut yeah. jobs. Yeah. That yeah. would be great. That man. is great telly. That is great telly. Please, uh, can someone pick that up? <laughs> collect together the, the most wild eccentrics of the last few years of question time. But I mean. This is, this is the thing about Brexit that just explodes the whole question of United Ireland. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fascinating. There was also some really funny footage of uh, Arlene Foster 
uh, talking about the she was going nuts about the abortion debate in Startment. Did yeah, you see that? Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, and and she was Startment sort of, out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and she was sort of uh, sort of begging the 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 sort of the officers in the in the parliament that they had to seek new legal advice and all this kind of stuff and it was just kind of going nowhere, but yeah, of course it does. Of course it exposes it. I mean, that was the first setting of Stormont for over two and a half years, yeah. was it? Yeah. Right. I, that which is not directly to do with Brexit. It's not. It's but that what the it, what, scandals around. Mm-hmm. But it's also it's it's to do with the fact that the Good Friday Agreement isn't durable over the long term because the the statelet of Northern Ireland is has been constructed uh, in a totally sort of artificial yeah. way, and it inevitably results in the sort of you know kind of communitarian politics where parties representing two communities which are still actually very divided, and and you know p- pressing money from the devolution settlement into their communities, yeah. right? In that kind of way, means that in, in the longer term it's not going to resolve. Uh, the issues of a state which is fundamentally not natural. It's, mm. it's not. It's not based upon a kind of naturally occurring demos. It's based upon well, British Empire engineering mm. um, for its own uh, interests. Um, from that constitutional issue to uh, the SNP conference. And Aberdeen. You were there in person. I was there in person. Tell us all the gory details. I mean, I tried to follow on Twitter, but I just got really. Yes, bored. no, no, it, is, uh, it was shockingly dull. I've been to just about every SNP conference since 2014. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, all party conferences are dire, right? They're all terrible. It, it doesn't really matter. Can what. I suggest a slight amendment to that sentence? Yeah. All conferences are dire. Yeah, conferences as a thing yeah. um, are, are as, a, as a format, it's never really enjoyable. No, um, but I mean, mainstream party conferences are the, are, that take place over several days are real hell. Um, now, the SNP conference is closer to 2014. We're still hell, but they there was a notable, noticeable difference yeah. in them, which was that lots of people... Um, middle class and working class, but fired up by the independence referendum. Lots of eccentrics there. Lots of, I mean, the conferences were kind of noisy. People would chat through the speeches. Do you know what I mean? There was, there was a, a that's a, that's a sign of. Don't get me wrong. That the SNP's internal culture has always been very centralised and supportive of the leadership, right? Mm. But it couldn't be strictly described as deferential. Yeah, but I think especially when you have lots of new people in a situation like that that has unwritten rules and unwritten formality about it like don't talk during speeches yeah. no heckling that sort of thing kind yeah. of gets diluted and ignored when you have loads of new people in and that, yeah. that can be quite exciting when yeah. there's that bit of buzz about like people aren't behaving in the, the normal way of things it yeah. makes it edgier that, that stuff can be quite exciting now um, also at those early conferences you would see people you would see the kind of slimy careerists coming in, right? So I, I spied at the first SNP conference I went to after the 2014 vote, I spied people who I knew had formerly been involved in Labour students. Mm. And I saw them swanning around in those sort of uh, bright blue waistcoats that people in the SNP wear, right? So they they chucked out their kind of Labour thin red ties and stuff, <laughs> right? And they'd stuffed themselves. Classic Labour yeah. look. 
and they'd stuffed themselves into those disgust, disgusting fucking pastel suits, right? And I decided, is it the blue pastel suit brown shoes combo? That kind of thing, yeah. 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 Uh, or if you're a woman, a sort of um, yellow kind of power suit yeah. type thing, yeah. right? Um, so there was that as well, and so so that you know there was still you'd look at that and it's grotesque. What has happened by 2019 is that element or associated elements are firmly in control. In Aberdeen, it has to be said very different from Edinburgh, where the SNP faced a rare amendment defeat on the floor of the conference. It was like a tomb. I mean, it was totally quiet. Uh, it was all the eccentricity was gone. I only saw one guy in a kilt. Oh, boo, his. I know. Uh, was old... it the guy that's always in a kilt? No, I think not the one who's got a Mohican uh, <laughs> and a kilt. It was just a kind of old guy and a, quite a dignified, boring oh. kilt. You know what I mean? Oh. Not a sort of punk kilt. Not a, like, the populist kilt. Yeah. I mean, when you used to see that guy at SNP conferences, the media would be interested in nothing else. Oh, yeah. They'd yeah, follow yeah. him around yeah. and take shit tons of pictures of him. Um, but, yeah, that's the other thing. At this conference, the media weren't complaining. Right, so see it, see at the uh, Edinburgh conference, right when the SNP faced that defeat, lots of people in the media room were sort of upset, right? I heard I heard a couple of journalists swearing, right? Because they are not angry towards the leadership of the SNP. Yeah. They don't dislike the leadership of the SNP. They dislike the independence movement, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were angry that they felt a blow had been landed on Sturgeon, who they really like, mm. right? Um, at this conference, there were no grumbles whatsoever. And it's because the press corps know fine well that there is no plan for another independence referendum. Uh, and this was the most well-behaved I've ever seen, the press at an SNP conference. Uh, and it's precisely because of that. It's precisely because they can tell there's no forward motion. And that's why, that's the main reason that the conference was dead. Um, because it became obvious at that conference. First of all, it wasn't it wasn't like a general election conference, and it certainly wasn't a conference on the verge of an independence referendum. Um, it was just a very standard business as usual sort of conference. And you know there were there were still some normal people who were delegates, but the main feeling I got was I couldn't tell the delegates from the people who were there to represent the big third sector organisations from the politicians. Mm. I think that tells you a lot about the thin strata yeah. that, that that was represented there. Yeah, so it's not just the it's not just the Scottish media that loves Sturgeon. Yeah, like, yeah, this is this is something that I think has emerged particularly since Brexit. Yeah, is that Nicola Sturgeon is portrayed in the press as the kind of the last sensible political leader in Britain. Or arguably in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the BBC won't even cover the big independence demonstrations, mm-hmm. right? And Nicholas Sturgeon won't attend them, right? Yeah. So I think that they have that in common, that there's a degree of disdain for the messiness yeah. of the independence movement. But she ultimately kind of has begun to represent that last holdout of the consensus around, like, from the London Liberals. Um, you know, the Guardian wrote an editorial where she's where they said that Nicola Sturgeon speaks for Britain, um, which is like that's big alarm bells for me about like what yeah. the the shape of independence is going to look like. Yeah. Then there was all the stuff where she had like, 
you know, um, that kind of, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this because I'll probably be slaughtered for it, but the almost Hillary Clinton-esque politics mm-hmm. of Nicola Sturgeon quoting Kissinger and, and Daddy Roy and, you know, that sort of, you yeah. know what I'm getting at. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And you have to say to yourself, um, the media would not be saying these things about Nicola Sturgeon if she was as strategically opportunist and assertive as someone like Nigel Farage's, right? If Nicola Sturgeon were pursuing the end of Scottish independence with the same aggressive that Nigel, aggressiveness that Nigel Farage uh, was, they couldn't say that about her. She'd be another demon. Yeah. She, she'd, be a, she'd be another evil element in the populist turn like, of Western politics. Like the SNP were originally portrayed. Do you remember, yeah. like... And, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> Like at any stretch, going to defend Alex Salmond. Mm. But do you remember the start of the like the referendum campaign, him being like compared to Mugabe and uh, all yeah. that stuff, like Hitler and yeah. Mussolini. And, Mussolini, yeah, that's yeah. the other famous one. Yeah, um, that was when the SNP was perceived as a threat because they were at the beginning of a campaign that could feasibly break up the union. And obviously, Scotland and in the rest of the UK, the press have decided that Nicola Sturgeon does not represent an equivalent threat. And I have to say, I think they're right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. We've got our own conference coming up because yeah. we love conferences so much. No, basically, we've just <laughs> ran out of tactics. So <laughs> It's either the two tactics of the left right now are either gluing yourself to trains or oh, having a conference. conference. Yeah. Yeah. And so the RIT conference, Radical Independence Campaign Conference, is on Saturday in the Radisson, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, that's where we had the very first one. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really nice. Uh, do you know what I mean? I think it's nice to go back to that point because that first conference was the kind of main like internationalist, anti-imperialist, mm. anti-Britain. I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. In, in terms of its positioning, um, and now we're we're back there, five years later, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and really. Conta will have a, a presence there as well. Yep. There's still tickets and um, tons of great speakers. We've got Clara Pinsetti, mm-hmm. got Amir Amwar. And, um, and I think, crucially, if you want to have the debate about what now happens to the Scottish independence movement, it's going to have to happen there. Yeah, but it's happening there. Yeah. You're, you're in a debate session, aren't you? Yeah. We're yeah. going to record that debate. I think it's on Brexit. Is it on Europe? It's about, yeah, it's about all these sort of issues. What Europe, sovereignty. Sovereignty, yeah, yeah. This is the thing, like, this is our sort of big political slant at the moment, like, for you and I, mm-hmm. is that independence has to be about sovereignty. Yeah. Like, the decisions about Scotland have to be made by the people who live in Scotland. Yeah. And of- what we see, like, so with the Growth Commission, any plans for independence, the approach to Europe is that the SNP want independence, but then to give it away. Yeah. To like like currency be run by the Bank of England, mm-hmm. to let social policy and economic policy be dictated by the European Union, to let international policy be part of NATO. Mm. Like that that's not independence, it's certainly not sovereignty. And not only is it the wrong destination, it's no way it's no way to get there. Uh, I mean after, mm-hmm. what we now know after the Brexit negotiations is if you turn up in a negotiation and say, I need X, Y, and Z stuff from Washington, Brussels and London for me to even become independent, you're not going anywhere. Uh, it's that simple. So that... so you can come in person and hear David debate those issues. Yeah. But Contra will also have a stall, and we have a special edition of our 
magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, so Contour magazine is currently in production, but we have a one-off special limited edition run of a Radical Independence version, which has got articles from David, George Kerevan, James Foley, um, and that's that'll be that'll be good. Yeah, and designed by Cat Boyd. Oh, designed by Cat Boyd. Yeah, um, it's very Maoist looking. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. I like that about it, actually. It looks like a kind of shining path. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sort of it's our own end-of-the-world disaster <laughs> socialism death cult. Yeah, yeah. So get on board. Yeah. Um, well, we hope to see you at the Rec Conference. If you see us, come say hi. Um, we'll be broadcasting David's debate. And, yeah, we hope you're enjoying the pods. The usual stuff. Follow us on Twitter. If you want to donate, you can via the website. Um, yeah, and see you soon. Yeah, yeah. Say goodbye. Goodbye.